Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I believe it was Mark Twain who once said, What are you doing in here? Get out of my house. It is in that spirit that the Agora Podcast Network provides you, our loving listeners, with the finest of quality podcasting entertainment. And no one represents this spirit of quality better than this month's featured podcaster, David Crowther of the History of England podcast. For many years now, David has been one of the leading figures in history podcasting, and his podcast is one of my personal favorites, so go check it out. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts— those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. These are their stories. Fuller Theological Seminary. Three o'clock in the afternoon, presumably over a nice cup of tea. Even so, the discipline of church history has never produced lengthy methodological prolegomena like those found in the classic histories of doctrine. In fact, there remains a significant methodological relationship between the history of doctrine and the disciplines of biblical theology and the history of the religion of Israel over such issues as the propriety of a diachronic doctrinal method and the preferability of a synchronic and developmental study of the complex of religious beliefs belonging to a particular community in and through various historical contexts, a relationship that has little parallel in the more general presentations of church history. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story, from the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. This is episode 42, Class Structure, Part 2, Those Who Prayed, Part 1. Over the last several episodes, we looked at the nobility, their organization, their origins, and their favorite pastime, namely, war stuff. As much as I have spent months on this topic, I feel like I'm leaving much out. Nevertheless, it's time to move on. And so today, we move on to the second great social class of the Middle Ages, at least according to the people in the Middle Ages, the clergy. As a point of order, I know I said I was going to move on to the peasantry in earlier episodes. That was a brain fart on my part. Uh, my apologies. So, clergy first. Peasantry later. Covering the clergy, and by extension the history of the Catholic Church, makes me a bit nervous in a way that covering the nobility did not. For one thing, I'm way less familiar with the material. As a hipster of Jewish descent, the Catholic Church was not something I made much effort to study directly in my wayward youth, unlike, say, counterweight trebuchets. More dangerously, I'm beginning to tread on ground that will inevitably stray into subjects theological. Given the purported subject matter of this show, covering such topics was always an inevitability, and yet it's a delicate subject area. 
so it's about time we talked about religion and how I will be framing it before we get to the rest of the episode. The danger here is multifaceted and subtle. On the one hand, this is religion. Religion is tied to identity and is bound up with mythologies and narratives and stories people have learned since childhood. These are treasured intellectual possessions that bring people comfort in an increasingly ridiculous world. And while the ideas held dear by others may not seem to make sense to me, undoubtedly some of my own mental treasures may seem absurd to people who are not me. More broadly, standing in judgment of the past, or other people in the present who aren't affecting me, is generally an unprofitable activity when learning history. My default position is that, in our effort to understand the past, energy spent on judgment is energy not spent on understanding. There are two important counter-arguments to this position. First, from a methodological standpoint, some of my observations about events and beliefs are almost guaranteed to violate a cherished narrative held by someone. Treading too lightly in the name of avoiding a judgment could create as many distortions as the reverse. Of course, a complicating factor is that historians don't necessarily agree on any single objectively true version of events, if anyone still believes that exists, especially on topics that are as controversial as the history of religion. So my goal will be, in this respect, to seek to avoid unnecessary insult. I will report, to the best of my ability, my understanding of what happened, and attempt to treat beliefs with respect while framing and giving context. I will undoubtedly fail in some cases, and I beg your forgiveness in advance, but at the end of the day, I do need to call them as I see them, and I am willing to engage in productive discussion. The other counter-argument worth noting is that a historian who avoids condemning abhorrent actions of the past may in some way condone their repetition in the present or fail to give proper context for those actions. This is a long-standing debate in modern historical circles, and I have no answer to this question better than the people who devote their careers to this subject. My way of dealing with this will be more or less as follows. I will attempt to report on the subject and try to avoid blatant judgment, though I will acknowledge places where modern society might condemn an action. I will attempt to explain why medieval society's perceptions of an event were different from ours. An important part of contextualizing such events will be looking at how contemporaries viewed the subject. I will be making a special effort to address topics that have a special relevance in modern times, especially when modern historiography has colored our view of the subject, and I may draw out themes that I feel are important. All the same, I will attempt to distinguish between modern reflections on a subject and the way things were viewed by those who were inside the story, so to speak, and then also my tangents. In this discussion, the biases of the observer obviously become a factor, and so I think it's important to lay out there, maybe in a little bit more of a systematic way than I have in the past, my own biases. Background-wise, as I've mentioned, I'm a hipster of Jewish descent. My feeling in general as we approach the subject matter is that much of our understanding of Catholicism in the Middle Ages has been warped by the propagandistic efforts unleashed during the early modern period as Protestant and Catholic writers vied for the hearts and minds of the increasingly literate and powerful common people and middle class of Europe. In that context, a lot of our popular assumptions about the Catholic Church have been wildly distorted. Teleological efforts in the 20th century to try and contextualize and explain the Holocaust have not helped matters, though they are understandable. For me, there's a lot about the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages that I find attractive, in terms of the art, the philosophical writings, and the worldview of some of the elements of the organization, at least when taken in broad strokes. At the same time, the Catholic Church has been responsible for some truly heinous things, as the modern church has itself begun to acknowledge. Some of these actions can be placed into a context where we can at least understand and learn to avoid such barbarity in our own time. Some were simple acts of hypocrisy that were condemned even by contemporaries. 
It's also important to say that the church was not monolithic, and so different parts of the structure had different outlooks and reacted to difference differently. Sometimes these different outlooks were driven by petty personal differences as much as they were by actual different opinions on subject matter. Still, I don't want to sugarcoat this. In many ways, the history of the church is full of repugnant events, and some of them are systematic. But ultimately, I am coming to this as an outsider. As a hipster of Jewish descent, I have no stake in the tales of Protestant martyrdom or any emotional tie to the Mother Church beyond a vague enthusiasm for architecture and sophistic philosophy. I think we cannot really understand the Middle Ages without coming to understand the role of the Church. And part of understanding the role of the Church is understanding the fact that the Church, like all organizations, was made up of people, most of whom sincerely believed in its mission, at least as they understood it. That belief led some of them to do horrible things. Others were out for their own gain, which also led them to diverse outcomes, sometimes negative, sometimes positive. In any case, the church was not imposed on Europe by some alien malevolence. It retained its power because the vast majority of the people who made it up thought it had value and actively participated in perpetuating it. At least, that was the case until they no longer did, as we shall see when we get to the 1500s. As a final aside, my approach to these topics is necessarily a broad survey, intended to draw out some key themes for my own use later on. For those interested in some more in-depth information, there are some really great podcasts on these issues that have helped me frame my own thoughts on these subjects, along with some more conventional sources. The podcasts are, in no particular order, From Israelite to Jew by Michael Satlow, The History of the Papacy podcast by friend of the show and donor Stephen Guerra, His Holiness, The History of Philosophy podcast by Peter Adamson, and the History in the Bible podcast by Gary Stevens. Some of you have also asked me to talk a bit more about my written sources. I have a much, much neglected bibliography page that is supposed to serve that function, but given that I'm unlikely to suddenly have more time to work with, uh, here's a quick list of secondary sources. Church History, an introduction to research reference works and methods by James Bradley and Richard Muller. Medieval Christianity, a new history by Kevin Madigan. Those Who Prayed, an anthology of medieval sources edited by Peter Spear. Now, I tend, when I'm doing research, to start out with the secondary sources and then delve into primary sources as I get to individual topics, uh, as I have questions and things like that. So these secondary sources will be supplemented by a vast pile of primary sources that, you know, I haven't pulled up yet. <laughs> so fear not, you methodology nerds. Uh, there's more here than that but um, we'll get to it when we get to it, and I will probably talk about it in the body of the show. Now then, let us move a little bit closer to the topic at hand, the Catholic Church and its role in medieval society. I'd like to begin with a fundamental question, as is my want, and I bet you know what it is. What is a Catholic Church? There are a few ways to answer this. For our purposes, the Catholic Church is the institutional hierarchy, clergy, and adherents of the religion that existed in the Latin West of Europe, developing during the collapse of the Western Empire, and which continues to this day in a much-changed form. But in that definition, there are a number of terms and concepts that would have been alien to people in the Middle Ages, at least in the way we use them. The very idea of a religion that we have today, at least in the West, of a personal relationship with a set of theological beliefs of the divine, was not the relationship most people in the Middle Ages held. On the one hand, the distinction between religion and philosophy and science and metaphysics was all non-existent. So for devout people, the concepts we are broadly discussing might better be characterized as an ideology, a belief system, or a worldview. On the other hand, not everyone was expected to have the same relationship with this ideology or even hold on to the same set of ideas. 
While this was in some sense a pragmatic response to reality, it was also aspirational. The word Catholic is from a Greek term meaning something like all-embracing or universal. This is a universal church, it's made for everybody, which includes people who have honest disagreements. Podcast footnote. It's worth noting that before the schism of East and West, the Church of the Roman Empire called itself by many names, but often used Catholic Orthodox in its self-descriptions, particularly when differentiating itself from what it considered heretics. Many Eastern Orthodox churches still use this terminology, and the Western Church, at least from a doctrinal perspective, still claims to be quote-unquote Orthodox. The modern usage of describing the Eastern Church as Orthodox and the Western Church as Catholic can, in this sense, only be seen as a linguistic convenience. End podcast footnote. This brings us to the second major terminological issue. What was the Church? For us in modern times, when we talk about the quote-unquote Catholic Church, we're probably talking about the organizational structure of the church. The modern papal bureaucracy structures take up most of our attention, with maybe a passing acknowledgement that the bottom layer of the structure consists of a priest or priests and the parishioners of a congregation. In the ancient world and the early Middle Ages, this view would have been confusing, if not outrageous, depending on the time period. The church, as described in biblical scripture and in the writings of the church fathers, was not a corporate organization, but was the community of believers in Jesus. This concept was also often used interchangeably with the term Christendom, as in, that goat was so funny its fame spread throughout Christendom. It was understood that the church had a structure, but that structure was less important than the unity of the community and devotion. This idea became a bit more specific as the schism between the Eastern Orthodox and Western Catholic Church grew, but in many ways the writers of the Middle Ages simply ignored the Greek tradition as best they could. So in some ways, when we talk about the medieval church, we're talking about everyone in Europe in the Middle Ages, except for Jews and those living in certain parts of Spain, Sicily, the Balkans, depending on the time period and how people were feeling about the Greeks at a given time. That said, we need to come back to the understanding that not everyone participated in Christianity in the same way, and to a certain extent, that was okay. There was clearly a difference between the way the priests and the monks participated in Christianity versus the way your average illiterate peasant did. While this did present problems, this was okay, this was part of the worldview. So when the thinkers of the Middle Ages wrote about those who prayed as being a distinct class, they were not talking about the church as a whole, but only the clerics, right? It's those who prayed, specifically excluding those who don't spend all their time praying. And actually, this brings us to a third terminological issue. When we talk about clergy or clerics, the modern connotation is probably in terms of the person who heads up a congregation. But in the Middle Ages, and to a certain extent, even now in the Catholic hierarchy, there are a lot of people who were, and are, technically clerics, in the sense that they have been ordained as priests or monks, but who never serve a congregation in any capacity. Monks, of course, are cloistered in their monkeries and do monk things, but less familiar are the friars, priors, and then just, for lack of a better term, the clerics that made up the somewhat bewildering array of the Catholic hierarchy. Many of them were just functionaries for bishops and stuff, and never said a mass. The role these clerics were felt to play in society changed over time, and varied greatly by their designated position in the structure of the church. In general, they were said to look after the souls of the rest of society, but what that was understood to mean in practice had a fairly wide variation over the years, as we will see. For now, however, we should just begin by agreeing that the term Catholic Church is anachronistic and imprecise, but it is what I will be using, at least initially, for the sake of clarity. My goal with these episodes is to discuss the organizational history of the Catholic Church up to 1300-ish or so, and then to highlight how and why the clergy represent a separate class, and then finally elaborate on the relationship of that class with the rest of medieval society. In the process, I hope to highlight how the clergy was and was not monolithic, 
and how that impacted the changing conceptions of personal religion, and how the Catholic Church dealt with difference in dissent. The end goal of this discussion will be in describing how, around 1300 or so, the Catholic Church got into the business of declaring crusades and burning heretics, even as the conception of the personal relationship with the divine began a rapid transition. I really hope to do this all in only a handful of episodes. Uh, God help me. The development of the basic structure of the Catholic Church is deeply bound up in the origins of Christianity, and like the origins of the religion itself, it is shrouded in an ahistorical mythology that persists until after the point where the Orthodox Catholic Church, like the religion it helped to represent, is already largely established and codified. This is still obviously so far back from our time period as to be ridiculous, but a few points are necessary in order to understand what's going on. First, it seems likely, though not universally agreed, that some sort of church hierarchy structure developed very early during the ahistorical period. This structure may underlie the success of Christianity at a time when so many other mystical cults failed, due to the way the hierarchy interacted with the Roman Empire. For much of their early mutual history, Christianity was subject to some form of repression by the Empire. This repression was not of the type we receive from popular writing, movies, or TV shows, though it was probably real. There was repression. But violence against Christians seems to have been sporadic and unorganized, and Christians were often lumped in with all the other Eastern cults in the popular Roman mind that were so common at the time. Alternatively, when xenophobic riots were breaking out caused by rebellions in the Levant, Christians were often lumped in with Jews. These outbreaks of violence were often spontaneous to one city or else ginned up by a particular Roman official, or set of officials, which is to say that the repression was not simultaneous or universally imposed across the empire, if that was even possible in an empire that big. In such an environment, Christianity had certain advantages over its competitors. First, it was very focused on conversion via persuasion. It had low bars for entry, which meant that getting membership was easy enough. More to the point for today, having a structure that pushed beyond the borders of any particular region was probably a competitive advantage, because repression would never get the entire church, and the leadership could coordinate a response. Once repression in a region had passed, aid could be sent to those who remained, or evangelists could be sent back into the area from the untouched regions in the outside. The second point may flow from the first, or it may flow from the ultimate adoption of Christianity as the official religion of the empire, but this is an important point for us going forward. This is the observation that the structure of the early church paralleled and ultimately built off the bureaucratic structure of the empire itself. This structure created regions or provinces which were subdivided by major cities and their hinterlands, and with most people interacting only at the local level in their cities, towns, and villages. The key point is that, as mentioned in earlier episodes, the Roman Empire was in many ways a conglomeration of urban municipalities. For the church, then, it was the city that formed the initial organizing principle of the hierarchy. In each urban center, one major figure came to lead the community, this being, of course, the bishop. The bishop had the power to ordain priests, and bishops and priests were helped by deacons. Within each urban area, the bishop was the ultimate spiritual authority, that sometimes disputes arose between bishops, or with which the bishop needed outside advice. Then the bishops of major urban centers within each bigger region gradually became the person bishops turned to in these instances. In this way, the institution of archbishops and church patriarchs arose. The textural basis for this is complex, and I'm not a theology scholar, but in brief, the apostles of Jesus were thought to have been granted certain mystical powers by Jesus. The apostles in turn went around founding congregations, and those they left in charge of those congregations were also in turn granted the mystical powers, or some set of mystical powers anyway. Thus, the bishop claimed the source of their authority to ordain priests, because that ordaining is just transferring some of that magical power. 
Thus, the bishops claimed their source of authority to ordain priests, with the ordaining being the transferring of some portion of this mystical power from the bishop to the priest. This, then, underlies the ability of priests to change the bread and wine of the Eucharist into the flesh and blood of Jesus. The important part of this to keep in mind is the unbroken chain of succession of bishop to bishop and priest to bishop that would go back to the apostles. The patriarchs were supposed to be bishops of the congregations with the strongest ties to the patriarchs, with Rome having pride of place due to its connection to two patriarchs, Peter and Paul. Similarly, the archbishops supposedly represented relatively more prestigious congregations within this succession. This concept of apostolic succession remains core to the worldview of both the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. Ultimately, all of this was very much in flux, especially as Christianity moved from being an insurgent religion organized around a cellular structure to being an official organ of the hierarchical empire. The transition points are a little hard to glimpse, but the resulting tensions are ultimately not important in their specifics, except to say that Christianity and the empire entered into an increasingly hostile age, and dissent became increasingly problematic. A key part of the draw of Christianity for the empire was its promise of access to a special truth, and, in turn, from the point of view of the empire, an ability to use that truth to bolster the legitimacy of the state. Continued arguments with pagans and internal doctrinal disagreements undermined this mission, and more and more desperate efforts were made to eliminate the former while papering over the latter. Much of the real intellectual heavy lifting on this front was done in the relatively more prosperous Greek-speaking East, home of four of the five patriarchs. By contrast, the Latin-speaking West struggled with economic collapse and invasion, and only produced two thinkers of any note in the closing days of the empire, Boethius and St. Augustine. Podcast footnote. Boethius is a saint, and St. Augustine is a saint, but no one ever calls Boethius St. Boethius unless they're in the church. I'm not sure why that is. End podcast footnote. Both men were responding to the main intellectual currents of the late empire. Classical civilization had given birth to a plethora of competing philosophical schools and mystical traditions. By the end of the empire, it happened that Neoplatonism had emerged as the largest school, but this school was itself deeply influenced by the works of Aristotle, which was the main textbook even of the, ne- of the Platonic schools. It was also deeply influenced by the Stoics, the Skeptics, the Epicureans, and the Cynics. One thing that united all of these schools was a general initial contempt for Christianity as an illogical religion. Christian intellectuals worked very hard to prove otherwise, that Christianity was internally coherent and in fact represented the only real truth. While most people of the empire were never particularly interested in philosophy, it was a key pillar of the identity of the educated upper classes, and so this debate became a key preoccupation of Christian writers. The works of these Christian writers, in turn, became major works in framing the identity of the church later on, which then passed the importance of philosophy into the doctrine of the church to a certain extent. Augustine's works can be seen in this context, as actively responding to the arguments of the philosophers, and attempting to synthesize the arguments of philosophy with the arguments of Christianity. Boethius's work, despite being produced later, was in many ways an older kind of work. Though he did produce some theological treatises, which originally underlay his popularity with medieval thinkers, he also translated Aristotle and, most famously, penned a work called The Consolations of Philosophy, which does not mention Jesus just even once. Instead, this is a fairly straightforward work of Neoplatonic philosophy. The importance of Boethius is that because he was a Christian, and especially because of his theological works, it was easier for medieval Christians to justify reading and, more importantly, copying his works. Moreover, his works had a clear pedagogical purpose. Most of them served to synthesize large numbers of other works into a single edition for the purpose of educating people. Think of it this way. 
If you are in the midst of a zombie apocalypse, you have one backpack to stuff full of the books that will form the basis of your rebuilt civilization. Do you try and cram Newton's Principia in there? Do you grab Einstein's General Theory of Relativity? Or do you grab a textbook from an introductory physics college course that explains all of it? And that book better have your preferred version of string theory in it as well. While the monks of the Middle Ages were not fleeing allegories for modern-day social anxieties, they did have to contend with a lack of materials and time. Copying books was painstaking, parchment was very expensive, and only very few places were stable enough to allow copyists time and space to do their work. As a result, Boethius's work survived the fall of the empire more or less intact, and thus became foundational to the intellectual life of the European Middle Ages. We will return in the next episode to this topic a little bit more to discuss other reasons why books survived, because it wasn't just Boethius and St. Augustine, but we'll come back to this. With the increasing fragility and eventual collapse of the Western Empire, the mission of the Latin Church shifted subtly but importantly. No longer concerned with beating back heresy or winning over patrician pagans, the Church now sought to defend what it had. This would require first and foremost defending its parishioners in the face of a new military elite that was often either pagan or heretical in nature. In this process, the church became deeply identified with Romanness, because Roman was an identity held by most of their parishioners. It was, in a way, the last pillar of Roman society still standing, and its core constituency was the mass of the European population, now being ruled by Germanic invaders who considered themselves to be Roman. By this point, Christianity had become part and parcel of the Roman identity, and so Christianity absorbed other elements of Roman culture, such as the glorification of intellectualism and a well-organized society. Once again, the hierarchy of the church served the organization well, and bishops were able to act locally in the name of their parishioners, even coming to take on secular power, at least diplomatically, as we've discussed in previous episodes. Areas wiped out by war could again be recolonized, and gradually the church was able to convert the invaders, ally with their greatest kings, and expand. As the Middle Ages progressed, the ability of the church to provide legitimacy and literate functionaries made them invaluable to the new empire of Charlemagne, and so the new feudal social order was deeply entwined with the church. But the church was also changed by this process. The church clung to the old borders of the imperial system, but it was undeniable that, in most of Europe, the bishops were no longer the leaders of an urban congregation. Instead, they often presided over desolate cities. Often their own feudal holdings outside the walls were the only things that brought income and supplies into the deserted towns. And so it was that, at least in northern Europe, the bishops merged into the feudal power structure. Their alliances with kings and dukes of the New Age provided them with large holdings of their own, and they became just another class of landed magnate. Their Roman ideology remained in some ways, but the ranks also became filled with the younger sons of the new warrior caste. Lacking the intellectual resources of the old Roman urban centers, many of these men took office with only rudimentary educations, even at the level of bishops during some periods. It is in this context that the reforms of Charlemagne, and the related reforms carried out by King Alfred of England, have come to be seen by historians as the Carolingian Renaissance. There are three parts to this achievement. First and most important was the shoring up of the intellectual underpinnings of the church by the establishment of schools. These schools were sometimes established at the courts of kings and major nobles, but definitely at the seat of every bishopric. These schools gathered educated men from around Europe and sent them to work teaching the next generation of the European educated classes. Using such limited works from the ancient worlds that had survived, the next generation of clerics learned to read, write, do basic mathematical operations, and, of course, to frame everything with Christian doctrine. A major underpinning of learning about Christianity became learning about philosophy, for reasons we'll get into more next episode, and as a result, this made major use of works by Boethius and Augustine. 
While this effort of the Carolingian Renaissance was the most momentous, it can come off as definitively underwhelming to those so inclined to view it uncharitably. The church schools provided educations mainly for those destined for religious careers. Parish priests were given just enough education to read a mass, if that, honestly, and the most gifted students would become part of the bishop's own staff, helping him to manage his diocese. Others would become advisors to the local lords, kings, or dukes. While a major improvement over the nothing that existed before, it is easy to see this as simply stopping the bleeding caused by the collapse of the empire, and not an achievement on its own. But this is all an oversimplification. First of all, works of clear artistic, philosophical, theological, and architectural significance do survive from the early Middle Ages. While many would compare them unfavorably to works of earlier or later periods, there is basically no accounting for taste. These works show clearly the birth of a new culture, with unique methods of representation and thought emerging. In many ways, the lack of continuity from the classical world helped with this process. In many ways, the intellectual currents of late antiquity had become stale and static. Schools of thought were devoted to defending their positions and not to finding new and exciting syntheses. Having all of that thought shoved down through the keyhole of Boethius and Augustine forced the thinkers of the early Middle Ages to try and fill in the gaps using the intellectual tools at their disposal, many of which were the very bare-bones techniques gained from Plato and Aristotle. Given this context, it's unsurprising that they arrived at somewhat different places than the originals that they were supposedly imitating, namely Plato and Aristotle, via Boethius and St. Augustine. But even so, this process allowed for truly new lines of reasoning and thought. This then was followed up by a series of gradual reintroductions of the classics over the course of the rest of the Middle Ages, which we'll talk about a little bit later. This gradual reintroduction of venerable old material meant that every time an intellectual equilibrium was starting to form, a new set of supposedly venerable ideas would be unearthed from some library somewhere and leave the intellectuals of the area scrambling to synthesize the new old ideas into the old new ideas that they already had. The third and final aspect of the Carolingian Renaissance should have come first, but when delivering ideas of this complexity, you'll have to allow me some temporal sleight of hand. This third aspect is that the entire Carolingian Renaissance was not built on nothing, as I just said, but on the intellectual and institutional achievements of European monasticism, something which thoroughly upends our conversation so far and requires us to go back to the beginning, but that's going to happen next episode. Confused? Well, yes, this is the history of ideas, such as life. Just try to remember, the main hierarchy of the church, priest, bishop, archbishop, and pope, developed during the empire and was originally a fundamentally urban institution. As the hierarchy entered the Middle Ages, the bishops of Northern Europe retained urban seats, but merged in with the feudal hierarchy. The ideological underpinnings of the church were a mishmash of Roman identity with Christian mysticism, which was squeezed through a Boethius and Augustine-shaped keyhole. The reforms of Charlemagne helped shore up the intellectual life of the church by founding cathedral schools at the seat of each bishop. And at these schools, people learned some basic skills in preparation for a religious career. A lot of this was built on the achievements of European monasticism, but we will cover that next time. For now, thanks very much for listening, and I hope to speak to you soon on Wittenberg to Westphalia, as we continue to delve into how Europe got modern.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 